Okay, today's lesson is going to be lesson number six on the methods of textual criticism. Last week, we did the Reformation and the Age of Modernism in tracing the history of the text through church history. And today, we get into, finally, the methods of textual criticism. And uh, But before uh, we start on that, I want to make kind of a comment about last week. I think I'm afraid that I may have frightened a few, a few people in overemphasizing the, the, um, the King James uh, Bible and wanted to make a statement about that, that, um, that this, I, I hope to make this Sunday School more about the Greek New Testament and, and the, old, old, the Hebrew Old Testament, the original languages, because that's, if you remember uh, our first introduction, this class is not about translations. If we look at the doctrine of the preservation of the scriptures, the providential preservation of the scriptures. We're not talking about uh, translations. We're talking about the original languages. And, um, and so uh, there has been, you know, I kind of, I, I, I beat up B.B. Warfield a little bit too much, <laughs> and I want to build him back up um, because he is a very sound theologian, and um, I, I don't want uh, anyone to feel hesitant about reading some of his theological works. He's, he did, I, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe he did a great service to the church in um, counteracting the influence of Charles Finney. Um, and some of the Arminianism uh, of, of that time, um, and, and, and maybe, uh, is that correct, a correct statement? Um, and so I don't, want, I don't want you to think that I don't like B.B. Warfield. I, I do. Um, and uh, I also um, do not want you to think that our church is drifting towards a reliance on a certain translation, like the King James Version, as if we're only going to do like King James only or something like that. But in, in fact, um, the, the whole topic of what translation should our church use from preaching from the Bible came up in our sessional meetings. And people kind of started talking about that and it came to me and I said, you know what, I really don't care because a good pastor should not be preaching from a translation. He should be preaching from the original Greek and Hebrew. And I wouldn't care if he read his own translation. If he can support it by sound, that's what exegesis is all about, by the way. Exegesis, sound biblical preaching is a pastor who is willing to dive into the original languages. And therefore, we should, as a church, not be, from a preaching standpoint, should not be reliant on a particular translation. Does that make sense? Um, I would hope that... Um, but then, then the whole issue comes up of, as to what, what should we read when we study the Bible in our Bible studies or in our, in our home, uh, you know, in our uh, home worship, of, um, in our devotions and things like that. And um, I, think, I think this study will give a greater awareness of the issues at hand and will help us as a church know 
what what is the Bible? What I mean, that seems like a fundamental question, but that's what this whole Sunday school is about: is what is our scriptures? What do we use as our scriptures? And it is the original languages, and it's been provident and how I hope it's given um, a greater a greater confidence that we have the scriptures in the original Greek and Hebrew. So anyways, um, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 to 27. And if there were a theme verse for this whole Sunday School series, it would be this verse, these two verses. Um, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. John says this, These things I have written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Okay, so this is John saying basically, you have all these Gnostic false teachers coming to you, and they are telling you that you need a secret knowledge. But he says, no, you don't need this secret knowledge from the Gnostic teacher, false teacher. You have the Holy Spirit to guide you into knowledge and truth. And you need to abide in the Holy Spirit, is what he's saying there. And um, I think that's a, a great... Um, it, it applies directly to the issue at hand here when it terms uh, when we're talking about textual criticism. How do we know what is our Bible? Um, and one of the things that the modern textual critic wants to ignore is the fact that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church into into recognizing my sheep hear my voice. How do we hear the voice of Jesus? We hear by the Holy Spirit, by faith. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these, uh, this verse from 1 John that reminds us of a very, pers- a very important exegete that is with us, that is the Holy Spirit. He is guiding us. You are guiding us. And, uh, oh, Holy Spirit, and we welcome you to our church. We welcome you into our lives. Please, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, guide your church into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the the canons of modern textual criticism. or Or criteria or principles that modern text textual critics use to evaluate the various manuscripts that are out there. And uh, this was based on Taylor Sexton's Sunday School series, Believing Bibliology, held on March 2022. Um, it's out available on the web. Um, I, I really encourage you to, to if you're interested, um, to listen to it. Um, he is a OPC I think he's a ruling elder, or he might be a teaching elder, I'm not exactly sure, in the OPC um, up in uh, Georgia. Um, and uh, I, I was listening to him, and I was like, um, he went through these, um, these criteria or canons, and I thought, this is really helpful. This is really, so I decided to 
to b- borrow or steal his idea <laughs> and, and do the same in our, in our lesson, in our uh, Sunday school lesson. So I think this would be very beneficial. What, he's, what he did was he just went through the principles that they have uh, you know, developed for textual criticism and evaluated them. Um, so we're going to do that this morning. I'll be using, um, I'm not, I couldn't de- detect exactly where he found these principles of textual criticism. And so I found them um, using Bruce, Bruce Metzger's, um, uh, his introduction, what's it called? I'll be using Bruce Metzger as an example. He was a textual critic who taught at Princeton. He was a contributor to the RSV and chairman of the Committee on Translators for the NRSV. According to the Society of Biblical Literature on their website, um, quote, he said, he took great satisfaction in, in, a, in the expansion of the, N, of the NRSV to include all the texts views, viewed as canonical by Roman Catholic Greek Orthodox and Protestant Christians, and was pleased to present copies of it to both Pope John Paul II and His All Holiness Demetrios, which who is the a Greek um, Greek the leader of the Greek uh, Orthodox Church. So, um, Bruce Metzger lived from 1914 to 2007. Metzger also co-wrote the book Text of the New Testament in Transmission. Its transmission. Corruption and Restoration with Bart Erdman. This book is sold at Westminster Theological Bookstore. Um, Erdman was subsequently has subsequently deconverted and is now an agnostic. This book was the textbook that Pastor Sharp was required to read in his studies at Westminster Theological Seminary. So I mention that because I don't want you to think that this is some kind of esoteric you know, set of principles uh, used in the past and they're no longer applied today, um, but they are uh, indeed principles. Metzger is a contemporary theologian. He just died recently, in two, uh, 2007, fairly recently. Um, <clears throat> so I didn't want to use a set of principles that was outdated, um, but one that is modern and used in our modern translations. Um, I think it's important to note uh, that Metzger's co-author, Ehrman, um, deconverted. And there is a fantastic um, uh, presentation done by uh, Jeff Riddle uh, just a month ago at a conference up in an OPC church in Wisconsin. And they have an annual conference on textual uh, on Christian or believing bibliology, and Erm and uh, Jeff Riddle gave a, an entire presentation on Ehrman and his deconversion, and it was basically his study of textual criticism under Metzger um, that caused him to doubt the validity and the in, the uh, inf- uh, infallibility of the scriptures, and he became more and more liberal, and then eventually became an agnostic. And this is by his own admission. If you go out to Ehrman's own website, 
you'll find uh, the history of his deconversion. Yeah, Elizabeth. Um, no, it's not that. A textual criticism is the science of de- trying to determine the original manuscript from a from a wide variety of manuscripts that are out there. Okay, and so it's it's attempting to compare the various texts and then um, and then determine which one is closest to the original. Now. The goal of textual criticism over time has changed to the point where now it's done, uh, first of all, a textual critic, to get your THD, um, theological, it, a PhD kind of basically, in textual criticism. Metzger had his PhD from Princeton. Edward F. Hills had his um, PhD from Harvard in textual criticism. You have to be, you have to spend years studying ancient um, languages, all kinds of languages, and be an expert in all of them, fluent in many, many different uh, various ancient languages, and can take years and years to develop that. So there's not very many textual critics out there, but by and large, they're all unbelievers. Um, And they, um, they, they, uh, they basically, not all of them, but many, but many of them, and um, textual critics uh, are using these principles that we're going to go through to evaluate. Maybe they'll have two different copies of Matthew, or, or maybe many different manuscripts that, that they're working through, and they're trying to find the original. Now, the goal of that finding finding the the as closest as possible that they can get to to the original has changed over time to the point where they realize now in their in their view that we'll never be able to find the original and other and, and their goal now has become just to find all the different types of expressions of Christianity as they've mutated and changed so they don't their interest is now just history you know learning what this church believed and what this church through their copies of their New Testament, um, that that is not a believing, tech, you know, uh, science. Um, people that are into textual criticism, I would say, like uh, today we have. Um, oh, I'm, I'm bad at names here. Uh, uh, not Walfred, but um, Wallace. Daniel Wallace would be a believing textual critic. Okay. And he is still searching for the, orig- the original manuscript or trying, trying to, um, using these principles that we're going to go through. So hopefully that, does that answer your question? I appreciate it. Okay, yeah. Now, higher criticism has to do more theologically with doubting and criticizing, coming and studying the Bible f- from a critical standpoint. And higher criticism, which was influenced by lower criticism, is 
trying to, like you have the, um, the, uh, uh, the, um, they're, they're trying to determine the historical, they call it the historical Jesus, you know, what, what did he really, really, what did he say? And they doubt a lot of what the Bible has to say. Um, uh, and that's more higher criticism, but we're, this is not that. This is something different here. So, um, so I, as I mentioned, Metzger uh, wrote the book um, that the textbook by which um, Pastor Sharp uh, took seminary classes, um, text the text of the New Testament, its transmission, corruption, and restoration. And right there in the subtitle, you can kind of tell what the book is about. They, their thesis is that the the Bible was corrupted. And it's now up to us to restore that, um, to, to undo that corruption and find out what is the true text, what is our Bible. Um, so they, uh, in, the, in the 19th century, textual critics developed these canons or criteria to help guide Greek editors in compiling an edition of the Greek New Testament. They divide, uh, Metzger divides these criteria into two different categories. One, external evidence evidence from outside the text, and then internal evidence, evidence within the text. His first canon or, or, um, or principle, he says, in quote, the date and character of the witnesses in general, earlier manuscripts are more likely to be free from those errors that arise from repeated copying, or even greater importance, however, than the age of the document itself are the date and character of the type of text that it embodies, as well as the degree of care taken by copyists while producing the manuscript. This is, this is from Bruce Metzger's a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament second edition. So is that valid? Well, the validity, yes, yes, that's a very good, that's a very good principle. Um, in one sense. We're going to be talking about what is valid about each of the, these principles and then what are some of the problems of these principles. So first I'm going to talk about what is valid about this principle. Um, yes, more often a document is copied, the more likely it will be an error. Have you ever played the telephone game? <laughs> okay, you know if you play the telephone game that um, by the time it gets to the end of the line, um, your, your words that you whispered into your friend's ear is completely distorted. And that's what can happen also with copying a letter. Have you ever tried to copy a letter word for word by hand? Um, it can be a challenge if you've if ever tried something like that. Um, also, typo, typographical evidence generally reflects its age. So we know sometimes from the type of lettering styles that they use, um, that it reflects the age of a document. And also the degree of care. If you notice that the care in which they, they wrote the letter um, is done very well by a professional scribe, you know that there probably you would, if you were to take a text and it had all kinds of you know, words crossed out and all kinds of footnotes and different things, and then you had a text that um, was was very carefully, the letter style was very careful um, and pure. Uh, you, would, you would see that there was more care done to one copy versus another. Um, so what are the problems of this principle? Why would that be a problem? 
Well, what factors would cause a manuscript age to uh, one manuscript to age more more rapidly than another manuscript? Can you think of a, a what's that? The material by which it was made. Yeah, very well. It could, if it was it was copied on on material that disintegrated very quickly. Um, vellum is ten, tends to be not. Uh, for some, well, papyrus tends to last quite long. Can you think of any other? Yeah, John. Maybe if one is used a lot, maybe because it's good or preferred, it can look more aged and fall apart. Exactly, exactly. One that sat on the shelf in a library and was never used would have a much more pristine appearance than one that was read from every every day or every week, right? Or was was uh, copied. Um, so yeah, the usage is very important. Um, the moisture uh, of an environment could be important. For example, Europe uh, has a lot more rain than um, than the deserts of North Africa, doesn't it? Uh, so that could play a factor uh, in that. Um, so. Uh, so that is uh, that is uh, uh, some of the problems with that principle. Another principle that he has is the geographical distribution of the witnesses that support a variant. Um, the more, the better. In other words, if there is like three three texts that you have, but they're all from different geographical areas, the more geographical areas that support a certain reading may be weighted more heavily. That's what he's saying there. And I agree with this. Generally, this is true. Um, uh, there is problems with this, though. This is ignoring, um, in, in their application of this principle, they tend to ignore certain geographical areas. Um, and, uh, and then other geographical areas, such as Egypt, are given greater weight. Um, so I don't know that they generally uh, apply this unbiasedly. Uh, um, um, another principle that they have uh, that is listed in uh, Metzger's um, in his um, textual commentary on the Greek New Testament is I quote this uh, quote the genealogical relationship of texts and families of witnesses. Mere numbers of witnesses supporting a, um, a supporting a given variant reading do not necessarily prove the superiority of that reading. So genealogically speaking, a greater number of texts can be thrown off by a spurious ancestor that they all share. So when it's talking about the genealogy of a text, you, when you think of genealogy, you think about your ancestors, who, you know, who are your parents, well, texts have genealogy because they were copied from a, a child text is copied from a parent text, which is copied from another parent text. And so if you look at the, the genealogy, some, geneal some texts may have a whole bunch of children because they were copied very widely. And other texts uh, we may not have for whatever historical reason, we may not have all those copies. They might have been destroyed in some way or they may not have been copied that often. Um, so what he's saying here is that the sheer number of texts 
is not as important as the genealogy of the text. And so what is the validity of this? Well, it sounds, sounds logical, but there's, um, and I would generally agree with that, um, just you know, looking at it at face value, um, the numbers of texts that you find in the, in the 14th century is irrelevant to a, if you're comparing it with a 4th century text because, I mean, you've had centuries of copying and there's a whole lot of versions out there. Um, uh, this, the problem, though, is that this discounts the providence of God in providing a pure text for the church. It may very well be the opposite. The church, through, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, will reject errant readings over time. And a large number of texts that all agree can also demonstrate the faith and care in which they were carefully copied in contrast to a copy made purely for academic purposes or to satisfy the curiosity of a, well, of a wealthy patron. So what I'm saying here is that what, what would happen in the, in, the, in the church is that those, those texts that the church considered to be pure would be the ones that they would choose to copy the most. And so historically speaking, you would see much more copies of a pure text if you believe in the providential preservation of the, whole, uh, of the scriptures guided by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the church guided by the Holy Spirit would recognize what texts are pure and then what texts are, um, are spurious, would reject the spurious texts and would copy the one that is uh, pure more often. If, and all of that is, is the presupposition is that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church in recognizing uh, the pure text. Um, and keep in mind, too, uh, people th have a tendency, especially modern text critics, to think we in the 21st century and the 20, um, we have more we have more at our disposal. You know, we have more text. We've had all this history. We've found all these texts. In actuality, historically speaking, we have less text to work from than those um, in prior generations because texts are continually being destroyed. Um, I, I have uh, found a list um, online of all these texts and what dates they were destroyed, and we have, no longer have them with us. Um, and, uh, and that happens uh, over time. Uh, they, they disintegrate. And so um, not only with just the age of them, but um, they're destroyed in fires. They're destroyed um, through war and different things, uh, uh, through bombings. Um, and um, libraries are, are destroyed and leveled. Um, and uh, we no longer have as many texts as we did before. So there's great optimism in textual criticism, but I'm saying uh, that's, that optimism, I don't think, sometimes is as uh, merited as it should be. Okay, the next principle that Metzger mentions is that witnesses are to be weighted rather than counted. And the validity of that, I, I would recommend, I would say is very true. It's very true. The the weight, 
witnesses are to be weighted rather than counted. Um, the problem is that um, this is pure. This is the pure definition of bias. <laughs> this is basically them admitting we should weight the text that we consider to be more influential and more important. Um, I thought, uh, you know, I thought this was supposed to be a scientific method here. But what um, what text will you weight more, and on what presuppositions will you weigh them more? Um, they. Uh, Westcott and Hort weighted the Alexandrian text much, much, much more than the Byzantine text. Why? You know, um, and uh, we'll talk about some of the internal lessons. Let's move on to why they, they found that necessary. Um, I'll go into now these are um, principles or canons of textual criticism that are, are considered internal evidence, evidence from within the text. Metzger mentions three, uh, I believe, uh, under his section on internal evidence. <clears throat> Quote, in general, the more difficult reading is to be preferred, particularly when the sense appears on the surface to be erroneous, but on more mature consideration proves itself to be correct. And in parentheses, and this is his quote, more difficult means more difficult to the scribe who would be tempted to make an amendation. End of quote. So what's the validity of that principle? Um, well, it's very true in some cases. Uh, let me take uh, give an example. Um, the pericope of adultera, adultera um, which is the passage on the woman caught in adultery. Uh, that's in John chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verse 8, 11. When that was uh, being copied, um, it, was, it was very controversial. And the reason why it was very controversial is it, was, it showed an example of, of radical forgiveness on the part of Jesus to forgive a woman caught in adultery. Okay. Um, and, and so what you find is that as they were copying the New Testament, um, well, let me go ahead and read a section in Edward F. Hill's uh, book, um, page 189. Yeah, here we go. This is page 189 or 190, 197 of Ed, uh, of Hill's book <clears throat> of, of an example of this where um, where the uh, the scripture was amended. Um, it says, according to Augustine, <clears throat> circa AD 400, it was the it was this moralistic objection to the pericope de adultera that, which was responsible for its omission in the New Testament manuscripts known to him. He, this is what his quote says. Certain persons of little faith, he wrote, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had 
said sin no more, had granted permission to sin. So you can see uh, Augustine considered um, uh, this this particular passage to be uh, ripped out by people who were just uh, in conflict. The scribe was reading this and was was, uh, saying, wait, this can't be. How could this be in the Bible? And, And just left it out of their copy of the scriptures. So um, so the more difficult their reading is, is this principle to the scribe, but if they leave it in there, even if it's difficult to them, then that is to, to, that's, the, that's the basis of this principle. Of the, the more difficult the reading, the more authentic it is. Okay. What are some problems with that principle, though? Can you think of any problems with the more difficult the reading, the more authentic it is? Could there be a problem with that principle? John? It makes that choice dependent on the individual scribes. I mean, it, it, then it all depends on either the faith or intellect of the scribe, um, and you're making assumptions about what choice a scribe would make. Yes. Uh, regardless of, of who it is or, or why. Right. So it's all based on the scribe, which was we, we have to acknowledge, though, that scribes had bias, right? As, as Augustine, you know, illustrated here, what's, what's another problem? Uh, John? Uh, they, they could have been intentionally getting rid of um, heretical text, um, Discarding what they knew to be a false, a false text. So it could be the reverse, where um, the Holy Spirit was guiding them in in rejecting a false teaching. Um, I, I put down Arianism was the norm at one point, and so they they don't. Uh, so basically, um, that means that a, a scribe could could be making a mendation based on their heretical view, either adding or taking away from Scripture. Um, and also the problem that I see with this is that the truth never offends the believer. Do you understand what I'm saying there? The truth never offends the believer. What does a believer do when they come to the Scriptures? They bow in meekness to whatever it is that God is telling them through the Scriptures. Um, so this principle would then favor heretical readings because heretics, they want to amend the text. Satan wants to um, amend the text. He wants to distort the text. Um, but true Christians will copy it faithfully, even if it's a difficult passage to them, theologically speaking, even though it may say that they're a sinner or maybe that Christ was filled with grace and, and, um, and forgiveness toward a wicked sinner like uh, a woman caught in adultery. David, can I just ask you to clarify? I thought you were saying that the principle was the more difficult it is, the more authentic it is. Yes. Well, that's the principle that Metzger says. Yeah. Okay. Which is also what you're saying, right? That a true Christian will take the difficult passage and recognize that it is... Right. So where is the problem then? Well, the problem could be that a... So you're agreeing with Metzger? I agree with Metzger to some degree, and I agree. 
But then if I am a false teacher and, um, and I'm living in the time when Arianism was the norm, then um, if it's difficult to me as an, Ar as an Arian and I believe Christ was just a man, then I'm going to make an emendation. But Metzger doesn't, doesn't believe that happened. He believes the emendations were always on the orthodox side. Does that make sense? And that the pure text were the, the ones that, um, uh, that were unorthodox. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. So in other words, it's more about how that principle is put into practice. Yes. And the presuppositions behind it. Exactly. It's head that one, one side is correct and the other side is making all the case. Right. I'm okay with the principle as long as you if you you apply it in a in a in a bias, and my bias is that the Orthodox was guided by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, maybe, maybe and the unbeliever it. applies the same principle, but says, you know, the uh, the Orthodox was the reviser. Maybe that another sense? way to say it is that the scribe may not have had difficulty with it, but the Metzger might have difficulty with it, and that's how he's assessing yes. how what choice was made. And based on his his own view of providence of God, um, basically, and the preservation of Scripture. Exactly. Another, The next principle, internal, is in general, the shorter reading is to be preferred. The shorter reading is to be preferred. And... Uh, under validity, I would say, um, yes, spurious phrases can be uh, definitely be added. Okay, uh, but the problems. What are some problems with that in principle? The shorter reading is to be preferred to the longer reading. Well, in the example you gave about the adults, yeah, they left it out. And that would be a shorter. Reading. That was a shorter reading right there. They took out the text according to Augustine, and therefore. Um, that that really may not be the case. Uh, um, that in that case, it would be the longer reading is to be preferred. Um, and how do we know that? It's the Holy Spirit is guiding us and showing us what is it that Jesus is. You know, uh, even he is even forgiving people caught in adultery, <laughs> as if. You know, yeah, John, go ahead. I've also thought about just the process of the scribe. I remember sitting, sitting in seminary being taught that, saying, that makes no sense to me. I think in the process of copying, you're more likely to omit something than to add something. Yes, yeah. Uh, we have another example in Edward F. Hill's um, 189 here. Let me read this. Um, <clears throat> this is at uh, Hill's, in his comment on this passage, Origen gives us a specimen of the New Testament textual criticism, which was carried on in, at Alexandria about AD 225. Origen reasons that Jesus could not have concluded his list of God's commandments with the command, comprehensive requirement, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. For the reply of the young man was, all these things have I kept from my youth up. And Jesus evidently accepted this statement as true. But if the young man had loved his neighbor as himself, he would have been perfect. For Paul says that the whole law is summed up in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But Jesus answered, if thou wilt be perfect, etc., implying that the young man was not yet perfect 
Therefore, Origen argued the commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, could not have been spoken by Jesus on this occasion and was not part of the original text of Matthew. This clause, he believed, was added by some tasteless scribe. This is, a, this is clear that this renowned father was not content to abide by the text which he had received, but freely engaged in the boldest sort of conjectural emendation. And there were other critics of Alexandria, even less restrained than he, who deleted many readings of the original New Testament text and thus produced the abbreviated text found in the papyra and in the manuscripts of Aleph and B, um, or Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So here um, we have an example of Origen doing this kind of cutting up of the scriptures. Um, And so when you see that, this principle kind of falls apart, doesn't it? The shorter is to be preferred. No, the shorter sometimes is evidence that they had a theological issue or of some kind uh, with this particular passage. So the problems are false teachers are just as likely possibly even more likely to remove texts that they did dis- they disagree with. Um, also, this rule favors Gnostic readings above all else as their texts were riddled with omissions. Also, this rule is prejudiced against Orthodox readings since it is generally assumed that any Orthodox reading was a later addition to the text. See how, how they, they look at Orthodox uh, longer sections that talk about the, maybe the Trinity or Christ being the Son of God as a, a additions to the text. Okay, um, we've got, uh, I've just got one more um, principle here. The scribes would sometimes, this is, this is the third internal evidence that uh, Metzger uses. Scribes would sometimes, A, replace an unfamiliar word with more familiar synonyms, B, alter a less refined grammatical form of less elegant lexical expression in accord with contemporary Atticizing preferences. That's Greek. Attica is Greek. Um, Add pronouns, conjunctions, and um, expletives to make a smoother text. Um, The validity of this, this is theoretical at best. Um, The problem is the principle is bias against traditional Byzantine texts as they were Greek-speaking, while Western copyists were more Latin um, speaking. Uh, so knowing the Greek here can actually help a copyist. If you know the language inside and out, and you're copying it, and, and then you give it to proofread to somebody else, and they say, um, excuse me, but this doesn't flow. Uh, let's check it out again. And sure enough, oh yeah, I made a mistake here. If you know the Greek, you can sometimes catch those grammatical issues. Um, This is uh, based on the theory by Westcott and Hort that Antioch revised the text, correcting grammar along the way and made the readings smoother. Um, Does this make, does, I ask you, does God make grammatical errors? (laughs) Um, This is bias against divine inspiration. Um, So in conclusion, and I think I'm doing okay on time, there is no such thing as neutrality. I hope this dem- just going through these principles demonstrates that there's no such thing as neutrality. The 19th and 20th century textual critics uniformly express a bias against the traditional Greek New Testament. 
In many places, their criteria is baseless conjecture. The bias considers periods of spiritual revival and orthodoxy, such as those experienced in Antioch under sound preaching and hermeneutical principles, to be a corrupting influence upon the Greek New Testament instead of a purifying influence. Do you see that? They believe the revival at Antioch of preaching under um, uh, Christostom to be a corrupting influence on the, on the Greek New Testament instead of purifying text. And the reverse is true. They believe the, um, the heresies that thrived in North Africa and in Egypt and the allegorizing of the text to be um, the most authentic. This bias sows seeds of doubt leading to unbelief, as is the case with Bert Ehrman, who eventually deconverted into agnosticism over his study of textual criticism. These, and I'm not saying textual criticism is all bad. I'm not saying that. As I, as I hope to demonstrate here, there is valid validity to some of their, um, their criteria. Uh, but these textual critics claim that we still do not know and may never know the true word of God, uh, the true words of Jesus, in direct opposition to Jesus' own words in Matthew 28, 20, saying, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So I'm going to open it up with, with some questions. Any questions about those principles of textual criticism or any, anything on the topic of, uh, yeah, go ahead, Lindsay. Um, did you say they added expletives? Does that mean something different in terms of, at one point? That was a, a quote from Metzger. Curses, or you know, curses, yeah. I assume I'm not sure exactly what he meant. I'm not going to defend his words there, but uh, he says add pronouns, conjectures, expletives to make a smoother text. I don't know how that makes. <laughs> no, no, that, that's what he says. I, I believe I'll I'll check to make sure I quoted him right on that. But yeah, no. No, that's what he says. I, I believe. I wrote that right. Because it hit me strange, too. I'm like, that's what it is. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, they, they really were strong about it. Or something, you know? um, any other questions? Yeah. Um, well, just, so, with the adding and taking away of the text, so when we see our, our translations that say older manuscripts include this, and or right, I mean, or don't don't include is usually yeah yeah right, right yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, implying that the, that was added then later. So how I guess maybe you'll get to this, but how do you reconcile that then? If it's not in the older manuscripts, doesn't that naturally logically imply that it was added? Yes. Yeah. Um, that's what the whole footnote implies. Really, and that that is, really is an expression of bias, right okay, there. So I guess my and, question is, and so okay. what? Uh, okay, let me ahead. answer a little bit more. Right. When they say older manuscripts, what they're really talking about is namely two: Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. Okay, and we're going to be talking about the character of those two texts. Um, what we find is that Vaticanus 
and I'm kind of getting it bleeding into the next. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it next okay, week so a little bit. Generally, though, you would say there are older older manuscripts that include it. Yes, in fact, we know that from okay. um, reading the church fathers, where they quote some of these um, texts that are in question, and three uh, three to one, they quote the Byzantine text. Okay. And so we know that those readings are were there, even though we're reading it in maybe a a twelfth or fifteenth century copy. We can go back to the church fathers and see them um, uh, quoting it as well. Generally, my my. Yeah. Has always been well. The Holy Spirit has led it to stay in the Bible, so I'm going with that. That you know, <laughs> that it should be there. Yeah. But yeah. so I was just trying to establish right. that logic. Yeah. The whole oldest thing. What do right. they mean by that? And we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow, or not tomorrow, uh, next week. So, okay. well, let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your providential preservation of the Scriptures. We do trust in your words that you are with us. And that you've given us your words so that we can disciple the nations, so that we can teach them everything that you told, told us to teach, um, the words of Christ. We look forward, to, Lord, to hearing from you. Uh, please, through your Holy Spirit, disciple us through the preaching uh, in, the, in our worship service uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.